linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, I'm sorry about being so late getting this uh, podcast out again, but there's uh, been a lot going on around here this week. Primarily a Plylog Salon that Bruce Damer and Galen Brandt led here in San Diego last Monday night. And in a few weeks, I hope to play a few selections from that salon for you. But today we're going to hear the rest of the trilogue that uh, we began listening to last week when Ralph Abraham presented his introduction to today's topic, which uh, seemed to morph into a contemplation of uh, visual psychedelic language, something our visionary artists are uh, working on feverishly every day. But first I want to uh, thank two people who have sent in donations this week to uh, help keep this lawn going. And they are Aiden L. and RPC Services. So uh, thank you very much, RPC and Aiden. I really appreciate your help uh, getting these podcasts out each week. And I hope that life is treating you well these days. In just a minute, I'm going to play today's talk for us. But uh, first, I want to say a little something about Ralph Abraham. Because most of our fellow saloners uh, primarily know Ralph as one of Terrence McKenna's best friends and intellectual peers. But it is the uh, mathematician side of Ralph that I want to mention right now. Before I went to law school, uh, I did my undergraduate work in electrical engineering, and as a result, I took uh, quite a few advanced math courses. Now, uh, over 40 years later, I have to admit that all of those long hours of studying math seem to have been uh, wasted, (laughs) because I don't remember a thing about them anymore. And maybe that wouldn't have uh, been the case if I'd had... Ralph as my teacher, because from what I've heard, Ralph uh, not only is a world-class mathematician, he also excels in his ability to teach math. And my good friend Michael Shields and I were exchanging a few emails about Ralph the other day, and uh, here's part of what he had to say. I moved to Santa Cruz in 1981 and took the beginning Calculus One class taught by Ralph Abraham at UCSC. It was the third or fourth time I had tried to learn calculus since 1965. Ralph taught the math algorithms, or equations, by drawing with colored chalks and making visual simulated moving graphs. And I could see for the first time that all the equations were moving visual events. Earlier math teachers had always emphasized the numerical and symbolic algorithms rather than the visual movement. I finally got it. Ralph is an amazing teacher, and he's still going strong, as his schedule shows below. And then uh, Michael listed a few of the items on Ralph's current schedule, like uh, speaking engagements in the States, as well as in Greece, Italy, India, and Japan. And uh, you can find out more about these events by going to www.ralph-abraham.org and click on the Upcoming Events link. Hopefully, a few of our fellow saloners will attend one of Ralph's lectures and uh, send us a report. So now let's pick up with the last minute or so from the end of last week's podcast, where uh, Ralph Abraham posed the question on which this trilogue was to proceed. I should warn you uh, that there is a brief break about halfway through this trilogue. Just as uh, Terrence McKenna was in the middle of uh, something, one tape ended, and the next tape apparently didn't begin recording immediately. 
However, I don't think too much was lost, uh, so I hope you don't get too confused when there seems to be a little disconnect in one of Terence's thoughts. Now, uh, here is Ralph Abraham speaking just where last week's podcast left off. I call down, then, the trialogue mode. (laughs) Psychedelics and and mathematical vision. Well, the question that you posed in all of that, the nuts and bolts question, is can it be visualized with technologies ranging from paint and brush to supercomputers? I think it can. I think it is not in principle mysterious that it's uh, a domain to be explored. It may be fleeting, like the situation that follows upon the splitting of the atom or something like that. It may be remote, but it is in principle describable. And it's simply a matter of... uh, paying attention, gaining inspiration, and gaining skill of technical execution. I think you think that, don't you? Well, I think that uh, any models that we can build, verbal, visual, or mathematical, are really, really feeble compared to the experience itself. On the other hand, this experience is within all and without all and we are immersed in in this spiritual world so the tiniest resonance from the most feeble model may suffice to excite as poetry excites emotion to excite spirit Uh, and this is the essence of communication is to have a compact representation So the experience is infinitely complex. The representations have to be really simple. But the verbal representation restricted to verbal mode alone might be too feeble, not similar enough to excite by resonance uh, the similar state. I mean, we have the situation where we agree that not every person is going to become a cephalopod. Not every person has the time to become a shaman. But we need a certain number of shamans in our culture to help to reconnect uh, human society and the planet and the sky. So we need some kind of amplifying and communicating device between the few people who are our real shamans, let's say sacred artists of the future, and the mass society watching MTV. And uh, so the question is, can these means be of use to the clarion call that you've given in your book? Yeah, I mean, I think that what makes it confusing is when you go into these domains, the encounter is an emotionally powerful one. And and the situation is so novel that the experience tends to assume that this emotional power is coming from the input. It's not. It's coming from the encounter 
with the input. I mean, it's like posing the question, can you make a, a stirring record of the Grand Canyon? Yes, you can with uh, helicopter-mounted cameras and this sort of thing. But the emotion you have watching that, you bring to it. So the psychedelic dimension is objective, but it's also so awesome and, and so different from what we know that it encourages and promotes and triggers awe in us. And so we bring something to it which we can never image or, uh, or reduce to a, a verbal description or a piece of film. But in principle, I think the thing itself is just more of reality. It's like the heart of the cell, the radar maps of the Venusian surface, the center of the atom. I mean, these are real but this places. kind of reality, we don't need more of this. We've already got so much. No, we need more of, our, of this mental um, logos world. It's the logos world that we've lost the connection with. And so these computer programs, psychedelic drugs, dynamic modeling schemes are the equivalent of probes like Voyager. Uh, they're, but they're sent not to an alien planet, but to an alien phase space of some sort, but one that we need connection to. Hmm. I, I agree with Terence. The problem is one of the the emotional intensity of a psychedelic experience is totally different from seeing the computer graphic display of the kind we saw. And <clears throat> it's possible to get something a bit like that just by shaking a kaleidoscope and looking into it. And in these expensive novelty shops that dot California, um, one can find fancy kaleidoscopes beautifully made. And people buy them, I suppose, and, and you look through them and within a few seconds you're just bored. Nobody ever really looks at them for very long. You can see a dazzling series of displays of pattern and color, but somehow they have no meaning and don't engage one. And I think the, the, the difference between a representation of the state and being in the state itself is this sense of meaning, engagement, and intensity. And that, I think, is the problem, because I don't think it's just the graphic representation, I think it's that meaning and intensity that we can find in many areas. I, for one, being a botanist, um, am very drawn to flowers. I love looking at flowers, and sometimes you can look at a whole garden full of flowers, like here in Esalen, and it's quite meaningless. At other times, you can look at a single flower for a long time, you can go into it, it's like a mandala, you enter into this realm, and it takes on incredible meaning, beauty, and significance. And the realm of flowers is one that's explored these mandala-type, almost psychedelic spaces, if you like. And one can sometimes enter into it and sometimes one doesn't. The same with butterflies and many other um, natural creations. So it seems to me the problem is how to enter into that engagement, intensity, and sense of meaning, rather than representation of the pattern itself, because there's plenty of patterns around in the natural world. No, but these are space-time patterns. And whereas we can say the words space-time pattern, we nevertheless have no language for individual space-time patterns. W within space-time pattern, as experienced by us, as, as perceived by us, there is a kind of a resonance between different patterns that we see. Let us say the um, 
bobbing uh, kelp forest in the in the ocean out here that somehow makes uh, different elements of that space-time pattern make a resonance with different space-time patterns of neurotransmitters in the visual cortex or something. So some aspects are perceived and other aspects are, are not. They remain invisible to us. And yet we don't have any language for what we perceive. So we can't, as uh, Rupert suggested, have data storage and retrieval on this level. We don't have language for that. You've been, say, speaking of the flowers in the garden or the images in the kaleidoscope. These are static patterns. We have an extensive verbal language for that. So what I'm suggesting is an expansion of our visual linguistic capability in the direction of a universal language for space-time patterns, such that we could then speak of our experience. We could remember space-time pattern experiences, call them by name. We could mention to each other the mere drop of a word or a code, an I-75, a Highway 1, a Highway 0, and then we would uh, be transmitting a huge image of a space-time pattern along with whatever emotion you remember from the time when you experienced that awakening this in the mind of the listener and therefore able to converse, intellectualize, understand and reconnect with the space-time pattern of and feeling of the spiritual world. I mean, uh, let's, let's face it, we have had the most extensive experience of this world through visual metaphors of, well, movies. We experience the logos as movies. We don't experience this at at words, although there are sounds and there are words pop up from and sometimes there's writing on the wall like graffiti. Basically, it's an infinite uh, field of consciousness, of vibration, of uh, waves moving, of intelligence which may be disconnected in different parts. <clears throat> and when we travel in this realm, we go somewhere we've been before and we recognize it and that excites in us memory which is reinforced, which is extended, upon which we can do further experiment because we do remember that somehow our mental faculty, individually and within, it has data storage and retrieval and it has a language or something, and yet we can't share it. Even let us just say us three, we've had our uh, many experiences which I trust, I have great faith, are similar that are universal experience and yet we are absolutely speechless in verbalizing them to each other so we could see whether we had or didn't have any similarity in this certain, um, I'm sorry, words fail me. Well, I don't know. It seems to me that art or, or that mind responds, it has an affinity for itself and if it's universal then it has an affinity for the universal mind. What's interesting about the example of the kaleidoscope is it's boring after a few minutes. We all agree on that. If you analyze how it works it, and take it apart, the base uh, units in most kaleidoscopes are pieces of broken glass, pebbles, things like this. Detritus, junk. <laughs> And, and somehow uh, splitting this into six sections with a mirror and putting it in heavy oil, 
is supposed to bring you to the realm of something watchable and interesting, but it isn't. The brain machines being produced in Germany are the same way. All pattern seems to be to quickly lose its charm unless it's pattern that has been put through the sieve of mind, any mind, so that when uh, so that we enjoy looking at ruins and uh, the artifacts of vanished civilizations uh, a lot more than random arrangements of natural objects. So it seems to me what we're looking for when we say it's like a DMT trip, the, the MPPI data on chaos, then what we're saying is, aha, here in this pattern there is the footstep of m the footprint of meaning. It's as though an architect passed through here and so we can appreciate it. So we're always looking for the betraying presence of an order that is more than an order of, I don't know even how to say it, economy, I guess. We look for an aesthetic order. And when we find that, then we have this reciprocal sense of recognition and transcendence. And this is what uh, the psychedelic experience provides in spades. Now, a critic of the psychedelic experience would object, of course it's made of mind. It's made of your mind. Uh, but for the psychedelic voyager, this does not seem to be obvious. The intuition is, it is made of mind, but it is not made of my mind. So then either there's an identity problem, or uh, a real frontier of communication is being crossed. But I think when we say we look for living pattern or aesthetically satisfying order, what we really mean is we look for the sign that mind has somehow touched the stochastic processes of, uh, of nature. Yes, but still the limiting factor seems to be neither the richness of display we find in nature, nor even the language that we can communicate with, but rather <clears throat> the ability to go into something with intensity of vision. Because I don't think language is a limiting problem. I mean, for example, music can be written down in a language. You can get a score of Beethoven's symphonies or Mozart piano concertos. I mean, I can read music, but for me, it doesn't come to life from this language. I have to hear it for it to come to life. The language is indeed a kind of communication, but it has to come to life. Presumably mathematical notation is a form of notating things in the mathematical landscape with ma which mathematicians can see. And take the realm of plants again. If you look at the incredible richness of botany, of flower forms, this is all, there is a language for this. It's used by botanists in floras. You've got books, you know, about the, there are words for these different kinds of flowers. And for a botanist, the whole thing can be written down in the specialized language. But even so, it doesn't mean that um, uh, most botanists spend most of their time contemplating the beauty of flowers. They're sort of rushing to the next committee meeting or getting their paper ready for the next public journal or something, <coughs> that somehow there isn't much time spent in actually entering into these realms, uh, even for people whose profession it is to be concerned with them. So we're neither short of images nor of languages in many realms, but rather of the time, the space, and the um, inclination to enter into these realms to be within them. 
Well, this is a good metaphor, I think, the musical metaphor. Let's just think of this for a minute. I don't propose that a mathematical model <coughs> of a, a brain or a plant or something would be as wonderful as a brain or, or a plant. Life will not be replaced by language. We never demand that much of ordinary language or poetry or of the graphic arts. Nevertheless, the evolution of music has been greatly aided by musical notation. Because we wouldn't like music to end and simply be left with a library of musical scores. Nevertheless, the evolution of music, the evolution of culture has been enormously facilitated by having a graphic language that can, to some extent, recall the actual musical experience. And this is the role that I'm proposing for mathematics, not to replace the earth or the heavenly realms, but just somehow to facilitate the traffic through, um, let us say, simply an analog on the same level of musical staff notation that pertains to the visual experience of space-time patterns, whether of a flowering garden or the waving sea or the psychedelic vision. Uh, maybe I need to tell you of last week in Denmark. I intended a, a conference about uh, chaos theory and its applications, and I showed this video. And there was in the audience uh, another speaker who is the world expert on algorithmic information theory. This is a way of telling the difference between chaos and randomness. And um, as Terence was saying, there is in verbal representation a kind of economy, that there's a simple formula that calls forth a complex experience. And this economy is the reason that language is, is interesting. Algorithmic information theory gives a way of measuring randomness, and what seems to us as random sometimes can be generated by a very small code or a musical staff notation, for example. And when uh, data from a scientific ex experiment looks random, one can try to test it uh, as to whether there is or isn't a, a compact economical model for it. And if there is, it's more chaotic and less random. So there, there, there's a measure for this. And a, a truly, according to their definition, a truly random process which w would provide data which could not be represented by any formula shorter than itself. <laughs> but it turns out that the, the weirdest, most random-looking data from the natural world, for example, earthquakes, sunspots, and so on, always uh, seems to have a very compact mathematical model. Therefore, it's not truly random, it only looks random. And this is what is called deep data. So what I'm suggesting is an increase in our uh, encyclopedia of models, extending language, so that we can name, store, retrieve, and recreate, not the experience itself, but the data of it, as it were, for the sake of communication with something which is very small, so that many of these models can be put in the closet. And this is exactly what musical staff notation did for, for music. It pertains not only to the spiritual experience, but also to uh, fundamental questions on the future of human societies, environmental problems. Can we understand the space-time nature of the planet well enough 
since it's so complex, to even be sensitive to it and cooperate with it. I mean, if we can't even understand what we're seeing when we look at, at the planet, then there's not much we can do to cooperate. Biogeography, bio for mm. example, is a botanical field that could be revolutionized by a staff notation for space-time pattern, which it doesn't have. But surely what we're looking for is meaning that seems to us somehow full of significance. I mean, in terms of information, even patterns, we've got libraries full. Uh, you go into any bookshop and you're just overwhelmed by the quantity of stuff there. And the idea of just having more, even more models on the shelf, even more, somehow doesn't seem very exciting to me. I mean, what would be exciting would be to see some deep meaning in all of this. And maybe mathematics is one way to find the, the deep meaning in things. Um, but if so, I'm not quite sure how. Well, the taxonomy of plants is not full of meaning, and nevertheless, vocabulary has evolved, so the exfoliate and the, all these mm. words are, are put on a page, and then another botanist can read this and actually tell, well, yes, this is the plant, therefore it's safe to eat it and have an experience. Mm -hmm. So um, I think a further development in evolution from the stage of having language may be the generation of meaning. I mean, meaning is not given in the data. We have to grok things. We have to uh, struggle and evolve understanding by some hermeneutical process. Hmm. So, um, well, our, our language, as people said when uh, printing began, that would be the end of memory. When writing began, that would be the, the, the end of history. Well, in both cases, they were correct, I think. <laughs> hmm. Yes, but when language began, we actually, that's when we lost our connection with the natural world. Well, well maybe, maybe it was language. a kind of language, yeah. I Spoken mean, language. Mm, maybe language processed acoustically, that it's not in the generation of it that you want to put your attention, but in the reception and decoding of it. That when language became something acoustically processed, it became so bloodless that it became then the willing servant of abstraction, which before had been an exotic and little explored branch of linguistic activity that suddenly burgeoned into the major concern of a lot of people. That um, language processed visually is here and now stuff of great density and acoustical language permits a level of abstraction that is creates a higher inclusiveness but a that's achieved by a necessary dropping out of detail I'm glad to hear you say so since it always sounds that you think the logos itself is speech but I'm I must say astonished at the resistance I'm getting here to the idea of visual language. I think that, well, when I travel in uh, France, I'm riding in the train or something, and I'm really bothered by all the gossip going around, because I understand French, and then I realize this couple is having trouble, and the, the train is not stopping in the station that I expected, and so on. When I travel in Japan, I don't understand anything, so it seems to me it's really silent there. It's very quiet. I just don't hear anything. <laughs> and where we have uh, an oral language uh, for a certain phenomena, we then perceive it. It is moved by a moving truck. This moving van comes along and transports this stuff from 
the unconscious system to the conscious system. Then we deal with it in a different way. And these uh, visions, space-time patterns, which we can't recognize, for which we have no visual language, they are essentially unconscious to us. So therefore, we can't interact with them. And this might be a fundamental reason that the uh, planet is dying. Either we shouldn't have verbal language, or we should have verbal language and visual language as well. I'm not sure which. But since verbal language is so poorly adapted to space-time patterns, I mean, we don't describe music in verbal language. We have staff notation, a visual language for music. And, and uh, I think that our intellectual relationship to the sky and to the earth would be vastly improved by um, <clears throat> developing a, a, a larger closet of models for visual processes. But I, I can't mm. let you to to agree to this. No, I agree. So, I agree. I think you're right that seeing language, I, I regard language as some kind of project that is uncompleted as we sit here, that it isn't the transfer of thought and intention into speech. That doesn't do it. I mean, clearly, you know, the whole world is held together by small mouth noises. And it's only barely held together <laughs> by small mouth noises. If we could uh, have a tighter network of communication, we would, in a sense, be a less diffuse species. Communication, the lack of it, is what's shoving us over the brink into possible planetary catastrophe of the psychedelic experience, because then you see that uh, if you buy in to the idea that psychedelics somehow are showing you the evolutionary path yet to be followed, then it seems obvious that what it entails is a further completion of the project of language. Maybe what all this technology is about is actually a more explicit condensation of the word I mean, it is interesting that modernity is characterized by uh, an ever more explicit evocation of the image. I mean, you just have to go back a hundred years and the best anything could do is an albumen tint photograph. Now we have, you know, color lithography, HD TV, high speed printing, uh, uh, virtual reality it's as though you know language is becoming uh, the word is becoming flesh and condensing into the visual realm would make it would be almost a kind of telepathy compared to the kind of linguistic reality we're living in now I mean glad to hear it yeah no no argument on that well, I think, I mean, what we may be doing is returning after a detour of centuries into the realm of literacy. You see, I think it's interesting that in most of human history, and still today, for, for more than half the people alive on this planet, uh, the, the literacy is not the big thing about language. It's spoken language. Most cultures are originally oral cultures. Still, the majority of people can't read and write. If you can't read and write, it means that the visual cortex in the left hemisphere of your brain has not been hijacked by the speech centers. As soon as you learn to read and write, the visual part of the left-hand side of the brain 
gets taken over by the speech centers which are to do with sound and the processing of sound and becomes adapted to reading and writing letters, language. And this knocks out one half or a large part of half of one's brain's visual processing capacity. It gets into the habit of dealing with linear print. Now you're afraid I'm going to knock out the other half. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that this, this I think that the, the uh, as far as I know, there's been very few studies of the difference in thought patterns between people who can't read and write and those who can. And I'm not now talking about people in our, in our society who can't read and write because they're dyslexic or dropped out of school, but whole cultures, like um, many traditional cultures where nobody reads and writes, or very few do. Um, there, language has a different role. It, in, in India, when I lived there, I found for illiterate people, there was an extremely power, language is a very powerful medium and it conjures up metas, metaphors, images in a quite different way that it does for people who are literate. Um, so uh, uh, you yourself are complaining that you find new generations of students at Santa Cruz uh, can't read or write anymore. Um, and it may be that this process of short-circuiting out literacy uh, is already well advanced uh, and that a new kind of visual language is developing. But, but it, I think that there's been actually a huge amount of discussion about this difference between so-called print linear cultures and oral aboriginal cultures. This is what McLuhan's whole work was about and saying that somehow the symbolic signification of language first through writing and then through printing um, has created um, has had all kinds of effects on the evolution of the Western mind that we until McLuhan were totally unaware of I mean he believes that the linear uniform quality of print creates the intellectual preconditions for the acceptance of an idea like democracy that you would never get that notion the Greeks invented it they had a phonetic alphabet uh, uh, modern industrial methods of production based on interchangeable parts he felt that was inconceivable except by a print culture that had the notion of movable type. Uh, the idea of the citizen is a uniformitarian impulse laid over the biological diversity of our individuality that could never have occurred in a culture without print. So the the bottom line in the McLuhanist analysis is that uh, we tend to be incredibly naive about the information processing technologies we put in place because all we care about is input and output and what we don't understand is it's the plumbing that this between the input and the output that gives a culture its whole tone, its values, its implicit political assumptions, its attitude toward nature, so forth and so on, and that what we are is a print culture, you know, linear, 
hierarchical. What we were. What we were, yes. We're undergoing a transition in the 20th century. But the intellectuals, unfortunately, at the top of the pyramid are the last to get the news. I mean, they're still poring over Locke and Hegel when, you know, what's really happening is guns and roses and nirvana. And I don't mean the Buddhist state of transcendence. Uh, so culture tends to be ruled by the people who are uh, the last to get the news in terms of new technologies which are reshaping the culture. Like, I think all this beefing about the death of literacy you might as well beef about the passing of the high-button shoe or the beaver hat. I mean, literacy is finished. It's, it was a phase. It's not to be preserved by anyone other than curators. The rest of us are going to live, obviously, in a, in a culture shaped by new forms of media. We haven't given up reading and writing books ourselves, have we? Um, well, I think we're reactionaries. <laughs> it's true. It's the drugs we extol that get us called modern, not or postmodern. Well, we'd like to uh, abandon books and only make documentary videos for PBS and BBC. It but pays so it much better. Work. It doesn't pay. It can uh, s support the process. So that's uh, at best for some time in the future. Meanwhile, the, the, the reason that I complain that my students are illiterate is that history is unavailable to them. There's no way to tap, tap into it. All these fantastic books on the Middle Ages, the prehistoric, the archaeology, and so on, this stuff is never going to be translated into documentary videos. It's not enough to just have a few curators who are in touch with the Library of Congress and the British Museum. Um, I think that w we need a large number of people who read as a hobby or something. Meanwhile... But don't you think, Ralph, that that's actually a kind of amnesia? It's not that they're illiterate. Illiterate is when you don't know the difference between Melville and Hawthorne. Amnesia is when you don't know whether the Thirty Years' War came before or after the War of the Roses. Well, if you're literate and you forgot, you could look it up in the Encyclopedia Britannica. You could <laughs> dial it up in a hypercard. I mean, there's going to be a CD-ROM for, in fact, I think you're the manufacturer. True, true. Yes. So... <clears throat> These uh, historical media, let us say, they don't lose their importance just because new media are developed. Now there's a further problem, which you touch on extensively in your book, which uh, relates television as a drug. Uh -huh. And I think this is interesting that we had, you know, we had botanical drugs, then we have chemical drugs, now we have electronic drugs. What's coming next? So the fact is that my students have watched television nine, uh, seven hours a day, six and a half, according to your book, since birth. And they are unbelievably quick with images. And it's great because this is a fantastic advance in intelligence and in human intelligence. And the way that information can be communicated in 25 seconds by the best of the television commercials, I think, is truly astonishing. 
and not everybody, you can't show these commercials in the African bush or something and get a response. You have to have people who have been trained up to it by doing their visual calisthenics six and a half hours a day since birth. <laughs> so that's good. What's not so good is that the material is available in the video store or from the Library of Congress after we get FDDI and so on. This material is unbelievably poor. And the fact is that if you make a PBS documentary on Food of the Gods, for example, nobody will watch it because they're busy watching Dynasty or I don't even know the names of them. And that somehow the drug abuse aspect of the new media is, uh, has already dominated its future. So that this creote is already so deep that it's unlikely we can swerve um, the video technology into an, an interesting cultural resource. Well, that is my problem with, the, with your approach, actually. Mm. The, the, um, these computer graphics use basically television-style technologies. No, the computer graphics, you see, are going to be... We're only five years away from having supercomputers like that. That was made on a 200 megaflop machine, which cost $13 million <coughs> three years ago. And today you can buy them for $500,000. We're using a $500,000 one will be delivered to the Cathedral of St. John Divine in five years. That will be in the kitchen keeping track of your recipes and running your microwave. So the possibility is to interact with this. You see, it already becomes almost as interesting as a psychedelic trip as long as you can interact. What's wrong with this passive medium is it's dead and some idiot programmed it and made it available and then it was distributed as a, a drug and people are, are actually addicted to the passive process of, of sitting there and knocked out and just like receiving somebody else's fantasy. So I think that when um, these supercomputers are available in kitchens and kindergarten playrooms and people are brought up on, this is an extension of life. This is an increase in the size of the playroom. The thing is, you can't <laughs> underestimate the perversity of people in terms of their tendency to prefer this passive thing. I remember in 1977 when I bought my first home computer, you got a manual with it called Basic Basic. <laughs> and the intent of this manual was to teach you how to program your computer. Well, six months of trying to peddle that to the American public, and they realized they had to completely rethink the product, that only a vanishingly small number of people were ever going to program a computer. It's like when you used to buy an automobile and you got a toolbox with it. Well, that's not been true since the 20s. So there's a certain responsibility on the consumer uh, not to demand the prepackaged, uh, the prepackaged stuff. It's the MPPI. These big machines are, to my mind, like the psychedelic drug state. But then everybody's trip is like the software they bring to it and run. And someone who goes to the MPPI machine to keep track of their recipes 
is essentially trivializing it because they don't know what it could do. This is probably the equivalent of going to a psychedelic drug to solve your relationship problems. It's that the question you framed was so stupid and mini-minded, and perhaps the drug, the psychedelic, can help, but what a tremendous misappropriation of Well, every power. tool will be misused as well as used, will be misused more than it's used, and the most popular books are cookbooks, and nevertheless, we write books, and <clears throat> to some little extent, they participate in the evolution of history. The fact that most books are used for recipes doesn't uh, totally destroy all value of books, and so it is with the new media, whereas most people will use them to uh, hypercard stack of recipes or sex postures or something, there will still be a lot of arcane and important available uh, material available in this medium which can't be accessed any other way. Nevertheless, I must say, you're, you're kind of dragging me down here. Maybe it's time I need some help from this group. Uh, I became very depressed this year when I realized that not only my students couldn't read or write, but also that their interest in computers was much less than the preceding generation a year ago, which was much less. For the last three or four years, interest in computers has been on the decline. So along with the television medium, the interactive capability, I mean, you're right about the tool kit that comes with the car and basic and so on. Not even to use uh, tools like Adobe Illustrator or HyperCard or or even McWrite or any, not to use any of those tools, to be only interested in computer games. Here's the most brilliant kids in high school are doing nothing but play Tetron Game Boy. Just think that over. I have my colleague, brilliant professors of mathematics from China who do nothing but after work, they play Tetron Game Boy. Think it over. But I'm 10 impressed. years ago, it would have been heroin. Now it's just Game Boy. What do you mean, just Game Boy? It's much more dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't been made illegal yet. True, they can just do it unto death. <laughs> but I, I mean, just one final point I want to make. It's the, the model you're suggesting takes us further into the artificial world, the man-made world of technology. and. The, we've still got this incredible resource, five million species of beetles in the Amazon. I mean, incredible diversity of the natural world that hardly anyone's interested in any, anymore. There are these herbarium collections, there are uh, it, all these different plants, butterfly collections, geological museums with rocks and crystals of every kind. Go into them in London or Prague or anywhere, they're completely deserted. That there's an incredible diversity of form in the natural world. Um, and we become more and more plugged into the entirely human world of technologies and man-made patterns, models, and so on. I mean, how does this relate towards, um, how could it help in a greater sense of connection with the living yes. world? Well, this will be maybe a good place to stop. I believe that our connection to the natural world will be enormously enhanced by the new media. And this is in spite of the fact <coughs> that most people will relate to it as a new form of drug. Uh, I, I don't feel personally responsible for the habits of the human species. I think that uh, planetaria, for example, 
which are artificial models of the sky, which are um, brighter and simpler and easier to understand, especially along with special programs that show only certain motions at one time, that the planetaria have an enormous potential to turn people on to the real sky, which, after all, is the is the ultimate source of our mind, our intellect, our mathematics and language, and, and so on. So, although the construction of planetaria in big cities around the world is an expansion of the synthetic world at the expense of the natural, the, the whole idea of it is to um, try to turn a switch in some few people that makes them aware of what was there all the time. And I think a hypercard stack with uh, high-speed high-quality color pictures and sound, um, giving all the beetles in the Amazon jungle would enormously help me personally to understand what I'm seeing when I go there. So, uh, nevertheless, nobody goes to planetaria. Nobody accesses these. A few school children will go once and nobody will really be affected by them. So somehow the habits of society are such that we can't... um, make good use what could be critical good use of technology and uh, in the meanwhile there are these elements that amplify infinitely the bad uses for some kind of uh, piracy I guess but but I'd like to defend Ralph to you, Rupa. I don't think that it's really a journey deeper into artificiality. I mean, science has been dependent on instrumentality for a long, long time. The natural world that Ralph's program would reveal is the natural world of syntax that, in other words, language would become a much more accessible object for study if it were visually explicit. And I expect that this is happening. uh, So it seems to me it's just a new frontier in natural history. It's this most complex and least understood of all behaviors which is language. And while the instrumentalities may be computers, high-speed imaging, and so forth, it's no more than using the Hubble telescope or something like that to, to tease data out of a very distant part of the universe and then make it explicit. And if we could understand language, we would understand something about our own a place in nature that eludes us because it's clearly the most complex thing we do and we're the most complex thing we know and the feedback from it is culture the most anomalous phenomenon in the natural world so I think it's pretty exciting to use these things to try and understand I mean people say spirit cognition, consciousness, but ultimately just language is is what should come out of this, a much deeper understanding of language. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a time, is this okay? Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, let's throw uh, it time, time to uh, o- open up for uh, 
our interaction on the larger scale. Customarily, we the uh, whoever does the induction also summarizes or concludes. I, I I don't feel I have the wherewithal to really conclude this. I would like to um, just end our trialogue with uh, a kind of emotional reaction to the synthesis of, of all this uh, what I see as <laughs> negative feedback to <laughs> not only my <laughs> idea this morning but also my life work I'm going to to, to say that I um, th- this was kind of a strategy that uh, uh, backfired I chose to uh, uh, out of from, from an initial statement where I put mathematics on a fairly high pedestal there as the um, the marriage counselor of Father Sky and Mother Earth, I uh, then, for the sake of discussion with uh, these guys for our own group mind, I scaled down the image of mathematics to an extension of language, a kind of language, a visual language, and so on, because we have to actually discuss mathematics here without really knowing what it is. It's a study of space-time pattern or something. I just want to end by saying this, that mathematics is part of the natural world. It is not an extension. It's just part of the natural world. Mathematics is a landscape which can be explored as simply and directly and with much incredible uh, pleasure delight and advancement as the psychedelic logos or any other aspect of the intellect. Mathematical landscape does not belong to the human species. It belongs uh, not to the earth, but to the sky. It's part of the infinite universe we we live in. And whatever microscopes, telescopes, chaoscopes, and computographic tools we can devise to enhance our vision of the mathematical universe is uh, definitely advantageous. How that this will fit into society, however, we admit that we are in a problem. Uh, we are in a cultural problem. We are in an evolutionary challenge from which the human species may not survive. Part of our difficulty is the rejection. I mean, this is perhaps a small part, but uh, mathematics is essential in the marriage of Father Sky and Mother Earth, and our culture has totally rejected mathematics. Uh, so it's possible that that's part of the problem, and uh, that's what kind of what I've given my life work to, as it were. So the uh, answer to the question on the psychedelic and the mathematical vision um, is that there is a relationship and is kind of abstract because we're stymied, I guess, uh, this, uh, to summarize our discussion by bad habits of the human species at the present time. So I'll leave it there. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So what did you think about uh, Ralph's idea that we develop a visual language, a vocabulary, if you will, uh, to describe psychedelic journeys in more exact detail? Personally, I think it's a great idea, and uh, in fact, I'd be surprised if that project wasn't already underway in more than one place right now. 
I'm, <laughs> I'm really tempted to tell a corny joke about the idea of uh, giving numbers to various types of experiences, but uh, I'll spare you for now. Ask me the next time we meet in person and I'll tell you. It really does crack me up, though. <laughs> anyway, uh, I hope that if some of our fellow saloners come across uh, attempts to create a language of the psychedelic experience, that they'll post information about it on our Notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org, as you know. And did you catch that part uh, when Ralph and Terrence were talking about looking up information in an encyclopedia or on a hypercard? You Macheads remember the hypercard? So uh, I guess it's safe to assume that the date on this cassette tape we just heard was correct, 1992, shortly before the World Wide Web came on the scene. And I have to give credit to Ralph here, uh, and I guess... Uh, to Terence as well, where they were comparing our evolving digital technology to a drug. It was almost eight years later when I wrote about uh, the Internet being a new psychoactive drug in my book, The Spirit of the Internet, and as I have come to learn over and over again, I still haven't had the first original thought in my head. It seems that uh, maybe uh, what all of us are doing is putting ideas out that uh, we're pulling out of the newosphere. You know, ideas uh, that are floating all around the world in some form of uh, collective human holon. Maybe Teilhard's prediction for humans to achieve a form of uh, super psychic ability is actually unfolding all around us. Who knows? I've also got to give some more thought to uh, what they were just saying about the end of literacy. While I applaud the evolution to more condensed forms of communication like the ones that they were discussing... The point that Ralph brought up about history not being available to those who cannot read is a very serious problem. One recent example came a few months ago when the official spokeswoman for the man currently occupying the White House had to admit that she had no idea at all about what the Cuban Missile Crisis was all about. Granted, that happened while I was in college, and so it's uh, imprinted on my mind pretty clearly. But still, uh, it remains the closest the world has yet come to a full-on nuclear war. And that, my friends, is a little bit of history that one would hope that those surrounding the most ignorant president in the United States' history would be able to at least fill him in on uh, the five or six biggest headlines of recent history. But I don't want to get started on down this path right now. Uh, you know, it just seems that not having a working grasp of at least recent history is a very serious problem. Maybe uh, some of our great YouTube video makers will take up the challenge of producing some interesting and fun-to-watch history lessons for us. Now, as I was listening to Ralph and Terrence just now, uh, when they first brought up the topic of the end of literacy, I first uh, thought about some of my friends, like uh, Matt Palomary, who earned their living by writing. Let's hope that uh, enough people remain literate and keep buying books long enough to keep Matt and my other friends uh, out of the poorhouse as they grow a little older. But my guess is that it's still going to be a while before uh, books go away, particularly great books like Spirit Matter, which is the title of Mateo's new memoir. And uh, I'm very pleased to report that at last Saturday's very prestigious San Diego Book Awards ceremony, Matt Palomari's memoir won first place in the spiritual books category. Now, to be honest, uh, when Matteo first told me that his book had been selected as a finalist in that category, I kind of groaned inside because uh, I didn't think it had a prayer in that category. Pun intended, by the way. 
After all, uh, Mateo's story is one of transformation that had as one of its primary catalysts our sacred ayahuasca ceremonies. Now just think about this for a minute. Here in San Diego, uh, possibly the most conservative city on the West Coast, home of a huge military and defense establishment, uh, along with thousands of retired defense and military people, you know the type, uh, cranky old geezers who think us kids shouldn't be fooling around with that damn marijuana, and let alone things like ayahuasca. Well, politically, uh, this is a pretty buttoned-down place. And yet Spirit Matters beat out all of the conventional spiritual books. Personally, uh, I think this is a very positive sign of the change in human consciousness that is now taking place just below the surface of our everyday affairs. So a big well done to Mateo. Uh, you're doing a terrific job of moving these topics into the mainstream. Bravo! And I have another bit of exciting news, uh, particularly for those of you who live near Ojai, California, or uh, can get there for an exciting workshop that will be held June 13th through June 15th of this year, which is uh, 2008, in case you aren't keeping up with trivia like that. I first found out about this event from uh, at least a half a dozen of our fellow saloners, including uh, Dr. Charlie Grove and uh, one of the presenters of that workshop, Dale Pendell. The title of this workshop is Visionary Practice, Ritual and Reshaping Consciousness, and it will include uh, both talks and hands-on work. I'll put a link to the full details along with the program notes for this podcast, uh, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. This uh, really sounds like a fantastic weekend. Uh, you already know three of the presenters, uh, Dale and Laura Pendell uh, and Eric Davis. And they've all been uh, with us here in the salon through their appearances as featured speakers at our Planque Norte lecture series at Burning Man. And the fourth leader of that workshop happens to be uh, one of my heroes, although we've never met. Uh, and I'll bet many of our fellow saloners also hold him in high regard. The person I'm talking about is David Presti, the uh, neurologist from UC Berkeley, whose downloadable lectures have uh, been talked about here in the Psychedelic Salon and in uh, several of the programs over on the Cannabis Podcast Network at dopefiend.co.uk. The version of his course that I got through iTunes is titled Psych 119, Fall 2006, Drugs and Behavior. But the poster for this event says that uh, the title of his course now is Brain, Mind, and Behavior. But if you go to the iTunes store and uh, search on Presti, P-R-E-S-T-I, you'll find his uh, course uh, under the iTunes U heading, where it's still titled Drugs and Behavior. Uh, there are 29 lectures in this series, and they are so packed with, uh, at least for me, new and interesting information uh, in each week's lecture that I've uh, put them on a DVD so I can be sure they're still available for me to uh, revisit once in a while. And if you've been with us here in the salon for a long time, you already know about those famous lectures. But if you're new to the salon, you uh, might want to check them out for yourself. But I'm getting off track here. Uh, the main thing I want to once again stress is the fact that if you're really serious about meeting people like yourself, then eventually you're going to have to uh, attend a few of these workshops, gatherings, conferences, festivals, and whatever. It isn't easy. Uh, I know that. Uh, even if you can afford to take some vacation time and travel to one of these workshops, it still isn't easy to do for some reason. Uh, I know that I was living alone and thinking about going to one of these events uh, for over five years before I finally did, <laughs> and that was in uh, July of 1998, just ten years ago. And believe me, uh, it changed my life. 
There is where I first met Terence McKenna, who uh, suggested I come to his Entheobotany conference in Mexico the following January. I did, and uh, within six months, I quit my job, moved to California, and uh, began doing whatever it is that uh, I've been doing here until <laughs> till now when we're having this little chat, uh, along with uh, tens of thousands of other close friends of ours here in the Psychedelic Salon. You never know what awaits you once you finally step out of your self-imposed box. And no, uh, I don't get a commission if you attend this upcoming workshop. Uh, that's not why I'm promoting it. And it isn't because uh, three of the workshop leaders are friends of mine either. Uh, but I'm really passionate about all of us doing a better job at finding the others, as Terrence so directed. Before I go, I want to read part of an email I received from JJ. He says, Hey, Lorenzo, my name is JJ, and recently listened to a podcast in which you said that Burning Man was out of the picture for you. I'm sorry to hear that. Now, I've never been to Burning Man, but it seems like you had a lot to do with setting up the plylogs, so I was wondering what will happen to the Burning Man lectures. Have you ever considered moving them? I gave this a little thought. If there were psychedelic talks given at a music festival, like Bonnaroo or Lollapalooza, you could get your message to the people who are on the fence, so to speak, regarding the responsible use of these medicines. People who take these substances at music festivals seem to be on the right path but sort of stumbling towards spirituality, empowerment, and responsibility. Some are on the wrong path altogether and stumbling toward burnout. There's a lot of energy, but it is hedonistic and unfocused. By giving lectures at the festivals, the thousands of people who attend these events may find the same reassuring sense of community that the podcasts provide to my fellow Slaughters and I. Well, that's a great idea, J.J. Uh, I know that Daniel Pinchbeck, Eric Davis, and Bruce Damer, among others, have all spoken at some of these other festivals, but I'd never given any thought to taking the Planque Norte lectures to one. And to tell the truth, it's, uh, it's a lot more work than I have time for until I finish this book that I've been working on for several years. But if any of uh, you event organizers out there would like uh, me to help you connect with some of the past Planque Norte speakers, I'd be glad to help. And if there are uh, any talks held at some of these events that anyone thinks might fit here in the salon, I'd love to hear them. And uh, if you do record them, be sure to get permission from uh, both the speaker and the event organizer before uh, letting me know about them, uh, just so I know I could use them if I hear them. One uh, last thing uh, I want to mention from JJ's email is the tagline at the end, which reads, You can never solve a problem with the same state of consciousness that started the problem. Well said. And a little note to Posh, who just joined uh, what I'm sorry to report is the now-defunct Palenque Norte mailing list. Sorry, everybody, but uh, I'm no longer able to spend time on the two mailing lists that I once maintained. These, uh, these podcasts are now my only form of mailing list, I guess. Anyway, uh, Posh asked if I thought the Kabbalah was psychedelic. Well, uh, I've never studied the Kabbalah myself, but several of my friends tell me that, uh, in their opinions, yes, it uh, does contain a lot of psychedelic thinking. And uh, maybe somebody will start a thread on that topic on our blog or on the Psychedelic Salon Forum over at thegrowreport.com. I think that uh, might evolve into a really interesting thread. And one last thing I want to mention uh, before I close with my usual rap about the Creative Commons license I've used for these podcasts. 
For a long time, uh, the lawyer in me was uh, saying that these podcasts are protected under the Creative Commons license. What I really should have been saying, of course, is that these podcasts are available for your use under this license. Basically, uh, what that means is that you don't have to ask permission to use sections or, or even all of uh, any of these podcasts in your own work, as long as it isn't for commercial purposes. Over the last few years, uh, I've been sent links to dozens of places where parts of these programs are being used, and I'm overjoyed each time that happens. Uh, recently, one of our fellow saloners, Murr, I believe his name is, posted a very brief comment on our notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog, and uh, it had a link to his podcast, which is named, are you ready for this? <laughs> it's called Brain Douche. Now, I can't say I'm in love with the name of his podcast, uh, but as a former marketing guy, I have to admit that it's a perfect name and that it's going to be almost impossible to forget once you hear it. <laughs> anyway, Brain Douche Number 9, titled Birthright, is to me uh, a perfect example of artistic ways that sound bites from these podcasts can be used. He's taken a short Terrence McKenna piece and uh, not just put it to music, but he's also used some very interesting audio techniques to emphasize the underlying theme that Terrence is presenting. As we've all discovered on our own, uh, when listening to one of Terrence's talks, there is so much information packed into them that they have to be listened to several times before we can fully grok all that he's saying. Well, the way Murr has styled this uh, little McKenna piece uh, goes a long way toward remedying that situation. But rather than you listening to me talk about it, uh, I'm going to play it for you as soon as I sign off and uh, let you hear for yourself what I'm talking about. And Murr, I apologize for not clearing this with you via email before posting this podcast, but recently uh, someone hijacked my email address and now I'm getting thousands and thousands of notices of undeliverable mail every time I open my email client. So uh, I'm going to have to give up on email for a little while until this spammer moves on to some other target. And uh, so I hope you don't mind my uh, playing your short podcast number nine. I haven't had a chance to listen to any of your other podcasts, but as you go forward, I hope you do some more shows like number nine. As you can tell, I like your work. So once again, I will close my portion of today's podcast by saying that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are available for your use under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage at psychedelicsalon.org. And that's where you'll also find the program notes for this podcast. And for now... This is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Welcome to Brain Douche. Tonight I'm trying a couple of new things. First of all, First of all, I'm going to try and sound like a podcast, so God help me. And second of all, I'm just sitting in my living room talking into my computer. Uh, not up in the studio right now. This is just an experiment to see if this will work for uh, recording little intros and things like this. So I can try and get stuff out a little more frequently for you. Uh, we'll see how this works. Tonight I have a piece for you called The Birthright. Um, it's based on a series of short lectures done by the bard Terence McKenna. 
Um, they were all posted at the Psychedelic Salon podcast a couple of months ago. It was uh, show number 120. I'll put the link in the show notes, obviously. And um, it's a really excellent podcast. You should really go listen to it. Uh, I, I, I can't do it justice, but it's outsider philosophy. It's um, psychedelic thinking. It's all kinds of good stuff. If you're at all interested in philosophy or um, liminal art or anything like that, drugs, obviously, go check them out. They're excellent. Anyway, Lorenzo, the host of the podcast, uh, posted show 120, which is just a series of short things. He called it notes to himself, just little things that he never got around to doing anything else with. And... Um, one of these talks really, really inspired me, and I wasn't quite sure what to do with it, but I just sat down and started playing with it, and I ended up with the following piece. Now, the background music is the song Babaji by the band and or artist Stargarden, Magnitudes.com. They've got all kinds of interesting other music that you should also go listen to. Now, sit back, relax, put your feet up. It's kind of trippy. Enjoy. If you want to get in contact with me, uh, you can email me at podcast at braindouche.net, or you can leave comments on the website. I like feedback. Everybody likes feedback. I'd love to hear from you and to hear what you think. All right? I hope you enjoy. There are thousands of altered states. You know, we know them. Orgasm, indigestion... <laughs> Two cappuccinos, uh, where tequila takes you. So, endless altered state. And I'm not really interested in them more or less than any of you are. I mean, they're part of life. What I'm interested in, as an experimentalist, as a, as a connoisseur of nature is this family of compounds called the indole hallucinogens. Just inspecting our own minds into 
hallucination is to be in the presence of that which previously could not be imagined. And if it previously could not be imagined, then there is no grounds for believing that you generated it out of yourself. For me, this was the revelation. For God's sake, you ought to know what's in your mind. This is part of our birthright. Well, then, if something comes forward and you say, that's not mine, then you have a kind of perfect proof that this is coming from somewhere else. And then the question becomes then the question where come 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 then the question somebody who didn't like these substances would say oh well it's it's just neurological chaos I know what a neurological chaos would look like. It would look like bright lights, moving patterns, colored this, something that. It would not be ruins, landscapes, machines, paintings, works of art, building plans, weapons, bits of, uh, uh, of manufactured technological detritus. These things are too coherent. They're objects in some kind of superstructure of the mind. And for me, this was the revelation of hallucination, is to be in the presence of that which previously... The psychedelic experience is as central to understanding your humanness as having sex, or having a child, or having responsibilities, or, or having hopes and dreams. about an experience, not my experience, your experience. It's about an experience which you have, like getting laid or like going to Africa. You must do the experience. Otherwise, it's, it's just whistling past the graveyard. And we're not talking about something like being born again or meeting the flying saucers or something like that where good works and prayer are the method. just because it didn't work for them on one or two tries. This is an art. It's an art. It's something you coax into existence. I mean, you have to learn to make love. You have to learn to speak English. Anything worth doing is an art that is acquired. This is part of our birthright. Perhaps the most important part of our birthright 